Morning, church. Are you glad to be here? I'm glad to be here this morning. It's good to see you. It's my second opportunity to come and worship with you. And uh, I see some faces that I recognize and, of course, some that I don't. So good that's why I said good morning. Uh, it's, it's good to see you this morning. And I want to thank uh, Afif and the, the elders for the opportunity to <clears throat> share some thoughts this morning. I know you've been in transition and are excited, I'm sure, about the arrival of uh, your new pastor and family, the Rufo family. So uh, that's coming soon. And I know you've been waiting anxiously. And uh, just want to commend your leaders here for uh, holding the fort, so to speak, and uh, moving forward uh, in spite of not having a, a pastor with you. Uh, I guess that shows that, uh, you know, pastor isn't quite as, as maybe uh, necessary as, as sometimes we, we think. We're all ministers, really, in the sight of God. So uh, thank you for all that you've been doing and your faithfulness. Uh, this morning, <clears throat> I've, en I've entitled uh, the message, A Change in Trajectory. I grew up in the 1970s. Some of you who grew up in the 70s and remember it uh, will know that that was a very contrarian era. Uh, pushback was uh, part of that culture and that society coming out of the 60s, which uh, obviously, we're very anti-establishment. <clears throat> the 70s were there as well and, and beyond to some degree. And uh, growing up in the Adventist church, my dad was a pastor, and I unfortunately took the uh, route or route in, in that era, and uh, it may be true still today in, in some places that, you know, pushed back against uh, the church and uh, the experience that my parents were providing for me, uh, and and uh, began to head in the other direction, actually. And, uh, you know, my dad would, would talk to me and uh, was, to say it gently, uh, disappointed, embarrassed about the fact that, you know, I was moving in the opposite uh, direction that he wanted and uh, was teaching others to, to move. And and, uh, you know, this happened as I was growing up, and finally I got to the age where I could make all my own decisions. I was beginning college, and, and so I began to, again, kind of push back and, and get into things that uh, I, I uh, should not get into and move in, in the opposite direction. And there came a day in that school year where the uh, Adventist college that I was attended extended an invitation to me to depart, and that... Uh, you know, was not what I knew my parents wanted to hear because uh, that would not only bring embarrassment but shame uh, into the pastor and the pastor's family. I understand that years later now. And uh, I, regret, I, I really was not looking forward to the conversation in which my dad would, uh, would again uh, come down on me, and uh, again, part of the pushback was I, in that era and in that age, I grew up in a, in a church, in a place where it was very works-oriented, very behavior-based, and so um, when that was the gauge for spirituality, I tended to, to push back against that, and I was prepared 
to push back again as I was having that conversation, was going to have that conversation with my parents. And I, uh, that conversation came and it surprised me. It actually um, was one of uh, acceptance, uh, forgiveness, extension of grace and support. And I will tell you that that one moment uh, changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, as I look back on that, uh, the unexpected um, response and the grace-filled uh, supportive response changed the trajectory of my life. Um, a few years ago, I was reading a book by Andy Stanley called The Principle of the Path. Uh, and in there, he makes a statement that I think fits the message that I want to share this morning. Uh, he says, direction, not intention, determines destination. And I like to shorten it to just say, direction determines destination. Uh, you know, if you're wanting to uh, head to Wisconsin, uh, if you're going to go south, you're never going to get there. I mean, that's just the reality, right? You know, if we want to go to Wisconsin and we head south, that's not the way to get there because our direction determines our destination. We know this when it comes to geography, right? Uh, it, it's not that complicated. The challenge is that oftentimes we struggle with this idea when it comes to other areas of our life. That our direction determines our destination. We, we struggle with the reality of that on the, on the front end. On the back end, we realize it. But on the front end, we know that financially, the decisions that we make financially uh, are going to create that direction, which is going to determine our ultimate destination when it comes to our resources. It's the same thing when it comes to our health, our bodies, what we put in. The direction that we're headed determines the destination. And you can apply that to all the other areas of life, including and especially true when it comes to spiritual direction. The direction that, that we head in will ultimately determine our destination. And the direction that you're headed in now towards God or away from God or somewhere maybe on the turn will determine your ultimate destination. You know this, but sometimes it's difficult to put that into practice. This morning I want to look at an account in scripture about someone who had again a moment that changed the trajectory of their life and changed the direction which ultimately change their destination, and I think there's some lessons that we can draw from that when it comes to the decisions that we make today in terms of headed towards or against God. If you want to follow along, it's in Acts chapter 9, and we pick, we'll pick up the story in verse 1 and see again what insights we might glean today from this moment in time in which uh, one individual, an individual by the name of Saul's whole trajectory of life changed based on a moment and uh, we'll pick up the story, like I said, in verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and he went to the high priest. Saul is the character that I want to focus on this morning. He will later uh, be known as Paul, uh, and that name, for those of us who pursue God, is a very familiar name because that's the author of most of the New Testament and has a, had a huge impact on Christendom throughout the history of the world, at least since that time. And it says here that 
Saul was still, and that's the key word I want to focus on, still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That was his direction. That was what he was trying uh, to go, the direction he was trying to go at. Now, we are introduced to Saul a little bit earlier in the book of Acts. In chapters 6 and 7, we see how the disciples of God, the disciples of Jesus are, are kind of too busy and they, and they decide we need to spread out the responsibilities and they choose some deacons. And the number one deacon, the guy that uh, we hear about in Acts chapter 6 and 7 is someone by the name of Stephen. And Stephen is a man filled with God's power. <clears throat> And he begins to preach and teach. And, and again, the religious leaders of that day don't like that because he's talking about Jesus and this group of followers that seems to be uh, growing uh, in, in Acts. The church begins to explode. And so they bring up these false witnesses against him and, and they bring him before uh, uh, these charges before him. And he ultimately uh, gets dragged out of the city and gets stoned to death. And Saul is inserted at the end of chapter 7 as a character in this story. It says that uh, those that came out for the stoning of Stephen, those that came out to participate in that, laid their coats at his feet. Now, so that we don't misunderstand that, I just want you to know that Saul was not the coat check guy at that time. He wasn't just kind of picking up the coats and saying, oh, I'll watch those while you guys go do the dirty work. The, really, the implication there is he's the leader. They are laying these at his feet so that he will know what they are doing, that they are following, actually, his direction. This is driven by Saul. You can read about it. That's chapter 7, 58. Chapter 8, verse 3 says, but Saul was trying to destroy the church, entering one house and then another, and he dragged off both men and women, putting them in prison. Anyone who pursued or followed Jesus Christ, anyone who was accepting this way that was a new wave that was coming through, uh, was being persecuted by Saul. And it happened with Stephen. It, it was happening then in the next chapter. There's an era of persecution that's begun. And Saul's at the forefront of it. In fact, if you read through the whole chapter, it says that he was persecuting people in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria. Now, that might remind some of you Bible students of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, in which Jesus says to his followers, you will become my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Paul, uh, Saul has begun that journey. He's been persecuting in Jerusalem. He's been persecuting in Judea. He's been persecuting in Samaria. And now in chapter 9, we see that he, be, he begins again this, this persecution, and now he's extending it. Verse 2, and he asked him, the high priest, remember, for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he, if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, which by the way was the way that they referred to the followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So now uh, Saul is taking his persecution internationally. It's going international now. Syria is in Damascus. Now he's fulfilling kind of the reverse of what Jesus commanded his followers to do. He's persecuting in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and now he's beginning to extend to the ends of the earth. He's going to other countries. And the first one is Syria, and it's time now for a change, 
of direction. Verse 2 again says that he's received these letters and now he's headed to Damascus, which is 150 miles away. And all of a sudden, things change in verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, verse 4, and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? A moment in time that will change the trajectory of Saul's life and the history of Christendom and maybe affect, I would say, most, if, most of us, if not all of us here. In fact, it was so impactful to, to Saul that unlike in other situations where someone is converted and they're on fire uh, at the beginning of the journey and then as, as time passes, that fire begins to diminish. Unlike that, Saul's fire, who becomes Paul, lasts throughout his whole life. In fact, three times in the book of Acts, we find that he's telling his conversion story. Uh, one's at the beginning, one's kind of in the middle, chapter Acts 22, I think it is, and then the next one in Acts 26. He's telling it before the religious leaders at the end of his life in front of King Agrippa. Uh, telling the power of that one altering, life-altering moment uh, that changed the trajectory of his life. And this is what's happening here. Again, as we look at these verses, verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus. Whom you are persecuting, he replied. Interesting to me that here's a man who's followed God, knows all of God's commands, and yet does not recognize the voice of Jesus. He doesn't know who it is that's talking to him. Is it possible, <clears throat> is it possible for someone to know about God to know all the laws of God, to know all the behaviors of God and what he would want for his people? Is it possible for someone who knows all knowledge about God and yet not know Jesus Christ? This is what's happening here. Saul knows who God is, but he does not really know who's at the core, and that's Jesus. Because when someone knows God, it all comes down to what God did through Jesus for us. And this is what he discovers. He has uh, an encounter with Jesus. And really, what I desire for my life and what I desire for your life is that you will have a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Because when we encounter Jesus, our life changes our behavior then changes, our attitudes change, our direction changes. And it doesn't necessarily change. In fact, I would say that it does not change if you just know of Jesus or you know of God or about God. You have to have an encounter with Jesus. And this is what happens to Saul. Verse 6, now get up, Jesus says, and go into the city and you will be told what to do. You'll be told what to do. Now, I wonder, why does 
God wait until this moment? Why, why does he wait until he's nearing Damascus? He's left Jerusalem, and now he's headed to Damascus. Why does he wait to appear till he's just about there? I, I would suggest that potentially one of the reasons, as you kind of read some other uh, authorities, uh, that maybe the church in Damascus was the kind of church that would accept someone like Saul. Because as you read through the rest of that, you, got, you, you have all this commentary about, do you know? <laughs> in fact, there's even questioning later on of God, do you know who it is that you're inviting us to accept? There are some in there who question the intelligence or the, the reasonableness of even God to invite Saul to be part of the Christian community. Do you know who you're accepting? And I'm suggesting here that potentially Damascus was the kind of church overall that was far enough removed from Jerusalem in which they understood the bigger picture and how to reach those who are farther away from God. And, and so they're more accepting, and, and I think this is what happens here. Maybe this church is a safer place than the church in Jerusalem. And I believe that there are churches that whose primary maybe focus is to be a safe haven for those who maybe are pushing against the grain, who are pushing against God, and they're, they're a safe haven for that type of individual. See, the reality is submission is harder for some than it is uh, for others. If, if, if you read in the account in, in chapter 26, there's an inter interesting statement that Jesus makes when he questions, it's verse 14, when he questions uh, Saul on the road to Damascus as to why do you persecute me? He actually, he actually says something. Let me read it to you. He says in, in here, you are hurting yourself by kicking against the goads. <laughs> you, you're hurting yourself. Because you're kicking against the goads. What's a goad? A goad is a long stick that shepherds use with pointy ends, sharp pointy ends, that shepherds use to prod cattle or sheep to go in the direction that they should be going in, that the shepherd knows is best for them. Jesus says, you're hurting yourself by kicking against the goads. Man, those things are sharp. You're getting bloody because you continue to kick against the direction that I'm trying to navigate you towards. That's best for you because I am the shepherd. And he tells us to Saul, you're kicking against the goads. And you look at Saul's life and there's no question that he was a serious goad kick kicker. <laughs> I mean, he was pushing against that. I understand to some degree of that, again, based on my early life experience, again, pushing against God, and ultimately it just damaged me. And maybe some of you here can understand that or know somebody who loves to kick against the goads. But you're just hurting yourself. It's what Jesus says. An encounter with Jesus helps us to realize the futility and the pain that comes attached when you're walking against God or away from God. See, I have found... This to be true, that life with God works better than life without God. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to work out perfectly in the way that we want, and that we're going to get our way, and that nothing bad's ever going to happen. But life with God, when we look at the eternal picture, works best, and it works better than life against God. See, my question for you this morning is, how has God been trying to goad you, <laughs> provoke you? 
prod you? What has he been trying to say to you? Maybe today, maybe this last week, maybe you've had this sense that God is trying to call you, to prod you, to provoke you towards something. And that's what happens to Saul, and I believe that happens to us in our experience all the time, except sometimes we're just not open to it. Sometimes we're just not sensitive to it. Sometimes we just don't want to listen, or our lives are too busy and too hectic that we can't hear God's still small voice. And so we don't hear what he's trying to prompt us towards. And in fact, we may actually even innocently or quietly be kicking against the goats. And we don't realize that the damage It's being sustained by us. (laughs) We're sustaining the damage. In the end, we're the ones who are going to suffer, if not now. Verse 9. For three days he was blind. This is Saul. And he did not eat or drink anything. I believe this gave him significant time to think, to reflect. Three days. I wonder if there's any connection to that in the three days that Jesus spent in the tomb, in darkness. Saul spends three days in darkness, thinking, processing. He thought that he was serving God by persecuting this upstart church. And yet this encounter now gives him an opportunity to change his direction. Because direction determines destination. The decisions that we're making now will determine our destination in the future. That's so important, and I wish that that was a lesson that I learned when I was young. (laughs) It took me a while of kicking against the goads and hurting and injuring myself to be able to understand that, that my decisions today determine my destination tomorrow. That's so critical. If If we could just understand what that means In terms of the big picture, we wouldn't make some of the decisions we make now. That three days allowed Paul, who was Saul, but now his name has changed, to reassess his direction. I imagine he thought about Stephen's preaching. I imagine he thought about that encounter as he stood there and he, and he not only heard Stephen preach, but uh, heard the message that this Jesus had been killed and then he had been risen from the dead. And, and I'm sure he's thinking, man, how could I have been so completely wrong? How could I have been headed such in the, such the wrong direction? And that moment, again, changed the direction, the trajectory of his life. And I believe when we come to that conclusion, that moment changes the trajectory of our life. One more character in this story, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called him in a vision. Yes, Lord, he answered. Verse 11, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for the man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man, Ananias, place his hands on him to restore his sight. I wonder if Judah was one of the guys he was coming to arrest. I'm going to bet, if I can, that Ananias was definitely one. (laughs) I'm coming to get you. And now the Lord is saying to Ananias, you go. And verse 13, I love what Ananias says, Lord, I have heard, I'm going to try to say it as gently as I can, Lord, because, you know, you got to be careful. (laughs) Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man 
and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all those who call in your name. Let me translate that. Lord, are you crazy? <laughs> are you crazy? Don't you know this is the guy who's, who's coming to kill us? Lord, do you know what you're doing? Not that we would ever ask that question, right? <laughs> do you know what you're doing, Lord? Why, why is this happening to me or, or why did this happen? Lord, do you know what you're doing? See, the, the reality is Ananias thinks he knows best. Ananias is like, Lord, I, I don't want to tell you how to do your job, but this guy is coming to kill us. That's a bad thing. So, Lord, uh, do you know what you're doing? And yet we often do this. We often step into that role where we think we're God. We think we know the decisions, and then we invite God to be part of us when we need you. And, that, and that's dangerous, a way to live. Do my life the way I want to do my life, and then when I need you, Lord, I'll give you a call. You can help me out. But I know what I'm doing, so I'm going to lead my life first. And this is what Adonai is getting at here. Lord, I don't know if you know what you're doing. Uh, and the Lord obviously tells him, yes, I do. Verse 15, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Big picture. Not little picture. Your life, you might die. Big picture. This man's going to bring my message to the Gentile. That means that every non-Jew on the planet will hear through this man. That's what a Gentile was, a non-Jew, and their kings. Oh, and also to the people of Israel. He is my chosen instrument. See, what you don't understand, Ananias, is that I have called him to go where you won't go. I have called him to do what you won't do. So don't Get in my way, the Lord says. Do what I ask you to do. And that is go over there, lay your hands on him, heal him, because he's going to affect the world in ways that you don't understand. Big picture. And he's going to do what I've been trying to get you to do, meaning that people, that group of people, the Jewish nation, what I've been trying to get you to do for 400 years. And that's what Paul did. He was uniquely positioned to reach a certain group of people. And that's my question really for you today. Who are you uniquely positioned to reach? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, when he gave us our marching orders, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, beginning point. And teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Ending point. Because once you've gotten there, you probably won't be on this planet. <laughs> he says, this is what I want you to do. To go make disciples. Who are you uniquely equipped to reach? That's the question that I hope that you wrestle with as your new pastor comes in. Who is it that you're uniquely and targeting and wanting to reach, positioned Position yourself so that you can make an impact for the kingdom in that group. That's what Paul did. He was now uniquely positioned to preach Jesus the Messiah and to do so in a very powerful way. 
I'll close with these two verses, verses 20 and 22. It says that once he began to preach in the synagogues, this is Saul slash Paul, that once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus was the Son of God. That was his message. Before it was about following you know, God's rules. Now it was, let me tell you who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. He's not just a man. He's not just a good teacher. Jesus is the Son of God. And then verse 22, and Saul grew more and more powerful because he was preaching that Jesus was the Son of God and baffled the Jews, those who were kind of more narrow-minded, living in Damascus by proving making such a strong and compelling argument that Jesus was the Messiah. How could he make such a compelling argument? Because he shared what Jesus had done in his life. And that's the best way to make a powerful argument for God is to tell others about the transforming power of Jesus and how he has changed uh, your life. Jesus changed the trajectory of my life to the point where it became my desire, my calling to preach the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. I hope you will do the same.